And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Cooch Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Garrett K. Wolf with author of the BSFA award-winning 100 African SF Writers series, Jeff Ryman on the Cooch Street Podcast. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. What, what did Jonathan just say? I didn't understand a word of it. It was something. Uh, it's Jonathan. I, okay, we're both responsible for this, uh, yeah. and and we can't explain it. Uh, Motel Six is actually more of a joke in the United States, I guess. And the Gershwin Room. So the idea of a Cole Porter style penthouse and a roadside motel is yeah. supposed to be a joke. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I I gathered that. Yeah. Okay. Not not necessarily a funny one, just a joke. But anyway, welcome. It's been a long time since you've been on the podcast. It's great to have you back. Thank you, thank you. It's fun to be here. I'm sitting in a room in Oxfordshire. Uh, It's not a penthouse, uh, and it's nearly May, and it's freezing cold. Uh, (laughs) I'm sitting here huddled next to a a real wood fire to keep warm. Yeah. If, if we weren't on radio, you could see it. Ask a question. Ask a question. Well, to begin with, uh, the, the this this is a massive undertaking already, uh, describing a hundred writers of African science fiction, and you're and you're not quite done yet. I gather you've still got a. Uh, you, you, you were saying, I think, at the end of the last one, you still want to talk to Sophia Samatar, and I don't know if you're planning on talking to Nettie. How did you get interested in? Uh, African science fiction. I know you you visited there and you set stories there, but this is a very ambitious project to undertake. Okay, well, 2009, I uh, go to Africa to see a friend of mine. Um, already the idea of uh, writing workshops uh, initially in his university or a little gleam in my eye. Um, and indeed, two years later and uh, a British Council grant uh, I was teaching at his university and at another university, uh, Taraba State University in, in northeastern Nigeria. But while I was at his university, McCurdy, in 2009, I ran across um, a book called Famine in Heaven by Odo Stephen. Mm-hmm. Um, and like uh, such has been the dizzying rate of change in Africa – in 2009, if somebody uh, had a book published, it's because they paid to have it printed themselves. And, fam- and then what you did is you, you taught it on a university course and made your students buy it, and the rest of the book sat in your garage. Um, and Famine in Heaven was one of those. It was this crazy 450-page novel uh, about two sisters, one Christian, one Muslim, who found a feminist utopia – and they have spaceships, and they go to Venus, and they go to the moon, and there's absolutely no interest in describing either Venus or the moon, or eventually heaven, where they go, because they're too busy debating why there should be a feminist utopia. Uh-huh. And then they come back, and they found one. It's a very, very, very strange and interesting book. But I was looking at that book, and then looking at all the kids who, even in 2009, all had smartphones, and were about to start doing all sorts of interesting things with them. And I thought, there's got to be more science fiction. You know, there will be more science fiction. I know there will be. Where is it? Um, And searching for it, the only thing I could find was um, there was this terrific blog called Afro Cyberpunk run by a guy in Ghana called Jonathan Dotsi. And then Mm -hmm. I heard rumors of this thing called Lagos 2060. 
um, which kept saying it was going to be a collaboration of architects and writers to imagine Lagos 100 years after independence in 2060, which sounded like science fiction to me. I really couldn't get in touch with anybody. I kept writing letters for a long time and nobody answered. Uh, my memory is I got hold of Nadia Korfor's email address and told her there was this thing called 2060 in Lagos. Mm. I think she did get in touch with them, but I heard nothing. And I don't think anybody heard anything until very suddenly, to my fury, utter and complete fury, uh, my own university got, somehow or another, got Ayo Deliari Babu, who was, the, who was the life, soul, and brains behind Lagos 2060, to talk <laughs> at the university theater without telling me he was going to be there. <laughs> I was furious. <laughs> I really furious. But um, anyway, that meant I, I finally got in touch with him, and I finally started getting in touch with a whole bunch of people. Uh, and I'm not sure at what point, but I just began to dig, and I gradually accumulated quite a lot of names of people who, um, with Africa, there, there wasn't any sort of genre platform. So it was very hard to recognize when something was going to turn out to be science fiction or not. But I was already running something called the African Reading Group, which was all commerce, all fiction, one in Manchester and one in uh, London. And we were reading a lot of stuff, and some of it was turning out to be science fiction. The long and the short of it was it turned into a rather long list of names of people, it seemed to me, were writing science fiction. Then in 2013, the floodgates opened with Lagos 2060 being beaten to the punch by just the absolute cornerstone, foundation stone of African um, speculative fiction, an anthology called um, Afro SF, edited by a Zimbabwean Ivor Hartman. And there it was, um, a really big, huge, thick book stuffed full of science fiction by Africans. And nobody uh -huh. would ever, ever again be able to say Africans don't write science fiction. Africans are either A, too sensible, B, too poor to be interested in science fiction. Um, or it's a diaspora thing. All the Afrofuturists are Americans. Um, they weren't able to say any of that. There it was, living uh. proof that for quite some time, people had been trying to get African science fiction off the ground. And so it turned out. It's not just the generation of, of Kodo Lang and um, Cheney Coker. I mean, if you're going through things like the Heinemann Book of Contemporary African Short Stories, what strikes you is just how many of them, completely unadvertised, turn out to be speculative or fantastical in some way, often rooted in um, not quite folklore exactly, more like uh, a sense of uh, imminent, eminent, all around you, spirituality and um, other realities that seems to just be part of the landscape for many African writers. Those guys, uh, as early as 2004, Lauren Bucus wrote a story called Branded, which turned into the core of uh, Moxieland. In 2004, uh -huh. you know, she, it was a sort of Charles Strauss moment. A lot of people who were actually working in 
new media or IT were turning their lives or dream images of their lives into fiction, and they turned out to be remarkably prescient. Um, I guess branded may have looked like cyberpunk at the time, but it was quite clearly set in um, a post-apartheid uh, multiracial Africa. And it was, you know, they were doing stuff on smartphones that, that people in New York weren't doing. Uh, in fact, when Lauren Bukas finally got to New York, she was rather struck by how backward America kind of seemed. Uh-huh. And um, so this was all about, it was actually sort of, you know, a, a dream image of the work she was doing on viral marketing and marketing on smartphones at the time. It turned into branded. At the same time, same um, era, Ayodele um, Babu uh, was writing straight up African science fiction off there on the West Africa uh, in Lagos and not having anywhere to publish it. He eventually founded a publishing company of his own to publish it, Adada Book. Um, there was an awful lot of activity, um, uh, Space Boy Nigeria, um, online comics in Nigeria. That came an awful lot of people, including Ayodele, trying to get comics, science fiction comics, off the ground. Um, they had a lot of exposure through TV and and importers to Japanese uh, manga, and and also to a certain extent to to Western comics. And so the, it was all gathering a pace. Um, in 2008, Chimarenga, which is a South African. Um, it sort of turned into a journal. It wasn't meant to be edited by Antonia Jabe. Um, uh, pulled together a double issue of Chimarenga, which was on black technology and Afrofuturism. It had a, a rather complete description of the film, The Last Angel of History, which was one of the foundation Afrofuturist texts and various other things. So... All that wave gathered strength, finally breaking in about 2013. Um, and then I had this list from AfroSF and writing to various people of a whole bunch of names. And I realized that there was a hundred of them. And I thought, you know, no one, will, no one will be able to say something isn't going on if there is something called 100 African writers is Speculative fiction or science fiction. <laughs> but I, 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 excuse me. And I thought it, it, it got born. That was the idea. In the meantime, it became painfully evident that we needed, uh, there was a huge need for something that would just recognize and honor uh, and promote um, African speculative fiction since there were so many people doing it. And so through the um, African Fantasy Reading Group, which is a page on Facebook, Mm-hmm. That now has 1,800 members. We started a discussion on what awards would look like. And um, that list of 100 people became a list of people who I wrote to saying, would you like to join this organization that will give this award? And that's um, so that, that again, the 100 African names sort of came in very handy to set up the African Speculative Fiction Society. And uh, from there, the Nomo Awards, Ivor, bless him, um, Ivor, uh, Nick Wood, Tade, and I were at a conference in London called Africa Rights, 
uh, and we were the last item. This was now in 2014, African science fiction, and it was a pretty good item. I was very pleased with it. And at the end of it, this guy called Tom Elubi came up to Ivor and said, if you pull that an award together, I'll finance it. And so Ivor, smart cookie that he is, got the guy's name and email address. And so thanks to Ivor, we got the funding. We have four years of funding for the NOMO Awards, which uh, nominations uh, went from January through to the end of March. Mm-hmm. Got, there was a kind of the usual kind of reluctance to nominate because people think they have to have read absolutely everything. And it's kind of hard to say to people, well, you know, no, if you what you have read, please don't nominate something if you haven't read it. Um, but if you have read it and you think it, that wouldn't be a bad winner, then nominate. So right. uh, we got about uh, we got over a quarter of the organization nominating, which is good. And we had enough members that it's meaningful to talk in percentage terms. Um, and we, you know, the short story uh, uh, nominations, we had over 70 sh- short stories nominated. So, you know, that's quite a spread of, of stories. Um, and the next thing is now we're going to, we've actually got clearance to, like with the Nebula, provide our members with the stories to read. And uh, I say, I'm, I should stand back. I am not a member of this organization. I have nothing to do with this organization. I shouldn't be its spokespeople. We have 10 national and, and overall spokespeople that you, you should be talking to about it. They've kept me on as a kind of consultant because basically I do all the boring ad. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but see, what you have to understand, Jeff, is from our perspective, we are that generation of people behind you. You started this voyage of discovery plainly that started a decade or more ago to try and discover something or find something that you felt must exist, just logically had to exist. And so it is immensely valuable for people like Gary and I, I think, and other our listeners to hear what you discovered, how you discovered it, and why you discovered it. You know, the... I understand, that, you know, we'll talk about the, the, the nomos a bit more in a second, but uh, I understand that they have their own organization and, and you know, we, we will, you know, recognize that. But what is really fascinating is that you responded, responded to the anticipated existence of something in the way that you did, and now you've compiled it into this series on Strange Horizons, originally on Tor.com. I think there's five chapters that have been published at the moment, covering various areas of Africa. What I wanted to ask you quite seriously is when you were in that that journey, in, in that maybe that 10-year period that you're covering uh, from Lauren Bukas' story up until not terribly long ago, when did you begin to feel that there was or wasn't something coherently identifiable as African science fiction? Because, I mean, it, it, it's a truism that Africa is not a country. It's, it's, it's a continent. It's a amalgam of, of cultures, of nations, and all that sort of thing. Is there a thing that is, in your mind, African science fiction or fantasy? Okay. Um, well, the term African is very useful in terms of marketing. Sure. It does delineate, and it's a very useful term. 
Uh, I try and get more specific as soon as I can for all the reasons that you state. Um, there's, um, oh gosh, there's a marvelous uh, Lagos-based comic company. I love the guys. I interviewed them all. It's like meeting the Beatles. Uh, hmm. they, they are a gang. They, the company has a flat that they work day and night together in. They have a gym in it. They live and breathe comics, and they're fantastically successful. Their comics are available for free. They're absolutely gorgeous. They're called the Comic Republic. They're only one of um, a couple, two or three other companies in Lagos. Lagos is going to be the comics capital of the universe soon. But um, these guys have, have gone, and I think they've only done it inadvertently, um, but it's very noticeable that they have a, maybe 10 titles and each one of them draws its superhero storylines really from another um, ethnic tradition within Nigeria. So there's comics that come from Edo tradition, Igbo tradition or Edo tradition or Yoruba tradition. Um, and it, it's very noticeable that, that this ethnic um, kaleidoscope that they're kind of used to much more than we are used to negotiating. Uh, uh, one of the states I was teaching in, Taraba State, um, there's 88 languages in one of Nigeria's 36 wow. states. And one of the guys who was really friendly while I was there was um, someone who, when I went back, was no longer the head of the department. He was, uh, but he was going to go to study at a there's a English language university in Istanbul which recruits a lot of Africans and he had a, a, a funding for his postdoctorate and he was going to do I think um, comparing English to li African language structures but he was a Fulani and he, he we we're talking about the Fulani in the Hausa who are regarded as sort of neighboring peoples sometimes they're spoken off sort of almost hyphenated so I we were talking about language, and I just said, so, but House and Fulani, they're very closely related as languages. And he says, well, oh, no, 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 no. They're completely different language groups. I said, completely different language groups. He said, oh, yeah. The, 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 no, they don't share grammar. They don't share vocabulary. And I said, but you're allied people. <laughs> and he said, well, um, yeah, it's just because we've lived close together for a long time. <laughs> and I thought, and I said, well, I, I wish... Somebody had told the Europeans that sooner because um, <laughs> they've been living to quite close to each other for quite a long time and tended to kill each other. Um, and, of course, there has been tribal conflicts all over Africa, if you want to use that word. But there is also a um, – there are – no one really knows how many languages are spoken in, say, Nigeria. Um Depending that there are people who would say they're Yoruba and that they both speak Yoruba who cannot understand each other when mm. they speak Yoruba. So the estimates vary from 400 to 700 languages in one country. That's diverse. And every one of those languages will have different forms of politesse, different belief systems. Um, so you're talking about diversity on, on a, at a complexity that we cannot conceive of. And just about every African you meet speaks four languages. They'll speak their mother language, which might well be a very small language. They'll speak the big language 
if they're in Yoruba land or Teve land or, you know, one or you know, they'll, they'll speak the big local language. They'll doubtedly speak English. They'll will knows pigeon. They'll know a couple of the other languages as well, you know. And then if they've had any education, they probably speak English. You know, one woman I, I write up in the series, um, I was sitting talking to her at this um, uh, book discussion group they have, and this woman had studied robotics in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, she didn't like America at all uh, and had come home. <laughs> but she she spoke seven European languages in addition to all the African languages. Wow. I, it just, I think li- linguistic stuff is just them. But when a book is public, when a, bo- a story is published uh, and, and, and Lagos is a major metropolitan area, what languages are the primary Lagos. languages that Lagos. stories are? Okay. Lagos. It really annoys me when people call Lagos. it Lagos. It's not a Portuguese word. It's Lagos. Ah, Nettie reminded us. You know, Avengers goes and makes a movie in Africa, and everyone talks about Lagos, Lagos. And, you know, ha, you've never been there, have you? No. Anyway, (laughs) sorry. Um, So what language do the books get published in or magazines get published in in Lagos? Well, yeah, English. And there's another story there. Ah. There's a whole topic. English, uh, we'll get onto that. That takes some unpacking. (laughs) and are are something else to talk about um to unpack what you're talking about um so what i do for 100 africans is i go to a country and i sit and i talk to the writers and i try and soak up what i can understand about the country and what's understandable is the countries are all extremely different with very different histories um, the Nigeria was the one that I knew best. So Nigeria, I thought, was Africa, um, and it's it's mar- you know you'll get you'll get the genius of Africa as strong or stronger in Nigeria than anywhere else. Everywhere you go, people are just doing amazing things with computers or animation or finance or. Um, Art or futurism—it's uh, a quite amazing place, dizzying social divides. Uh, no electricity, really, to speak of. <laughs> no running water. Uh, you know, uh, everybody has a generator, um, and I thought that. So, you know, the the next country I went to when I when I went there was Nairobi, and um, Nairobi was East Africa, and. At first, I felt kind of at home because it was a bit like Nigeria. And then I began to notice that things couldn't actually be more different, that uh, the power seemed to be 24-7, that you didn't have to have a generator, that there was running water. Uh, Something like one out of five or one out of six Africans is a Nigerian. So there's very little wild country um, and if it looks wild, it's wild like, you know, Idaho is wild. It's it's basically farmland, pasture land. Uh-huh. Uh, there's, there's not, you know, there's very few safari parks, like none. Um, and so you go to Nairobi and one of the world's largest wildlife parks is right next 
to Nairobi and they kind of have a problem with urban lions and um, it, the countries are very, very different. Um, I was, I loved being in Nairobi. I, I met an awful lot of very um, talented writers. I just lucked out. They were in town. I was able mm. to get in touch with them and got some good interviews. Uh, and and uh, also met uh, Dil Mandela, who is Ugandan, uh, and he showed me his uh, new film, um, Her Broken Shadow, which I think is quite possibly the best written science fiction film, full stop ever. Um, a really clever piece of multi-layered metafiction. Anyway, so that was Nairobi. Nairobi had a very developed art scene. Um, it's where the Kwani Trust is. The Kwani Trust was founded by Binyavanga Wainaina from his Kane Prize win money, as I understand. Uh, Billy Kohora, sort of head editor there, he's one of Africa's best-known editors. And there was a whole sort of scene around that, the Kwani Open Mic Nights, but there was another big uh, open mic night as well. Uh, the interesting thing with the Kwani Open Mic Nights is only about 25% of the stuff read there now is in English. The rest of it is in Kiswahili or Sheng. So that's kind of interesting. So, you know, there's immensely sophisticated, um, vibrant, um, terrible traffic, a very uh, interesting kind of city where a lot of the younger writers seem to be into things like the beats or the modernist, uh -huh. which is very different from the impression that you'll get from the greater part of West African fiction, which tends to be realist and uh, uh, formerly kind of conservative. Uh, so here is a completely different kind of writing with different kinds of writing heroes. Uh, Nambuzo Marashera is sort of a kind of wild boy of African fiction and, and, and very different from the kind of Chinua Achebe or Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie figures who are they're beloved, those writers are beloved in East Africa as well, but they're very much more the, the West African kind of writer, which is, is in some ways more classical. Um, so there was a huge difference there between Nigeria and uh, and and Kenya. Uh, then I went to South Africa. I went to South Africa because I got a grant to fund all of this, but I was supposed to be, well, I did that, teaching at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, which by the time I got there uh, was closed, basically, or brought to a halt because of the, uh, the radical de decolonizing movement in South Africa, Fees Must Fall, which is, it was fascinating to be there for that and uh, to talk to some of the university people and talk to the writers. Uh, I met some lovely, lovely South African people. Um, so many writers. But it was hard not to also notice that uh, unless I really, really, really made the effort, I would just be channeled all the time into white areas. You know, a uh, wonderful woman, Noreen Dorman, who I uh, is a talented writer, but one of those women who keep fandom going. Uh, um, she organized a seminar for me to be at because there was no university for me to do anything at. She organized it in her home and 
I'm very grateful mm. for that. But, you know, there were 37 people there and only one of them was was black. Um, and it's, mm. uh, I described in, in the uh, South African bit um, just how much violence and aggression I, um, I, I got whips off. Um, my first host, um, her boyfriend was a Rastafarian and, and he, when I arrived, he'd been very badly beaten up by police. Oh dear. Uh, um, I just, I kept running across strange things. So they're, they're in the article too. I found South Africa very tense, much more tense than I expected, much more divided and broken down all the time into smaller and smaller groups, all of them sort of slightly hostile to each other. Um, not, it's not just black versus white or English speaking versus Afrikaans speaking. It's a kind of odd sense that everybody has of not really belonging to the place. And I found it very tense. Um, but my goodness, creative and lots and lots of very fine writers. Um, and, uh, lovely people. Um, Malawi. Um, by contrast, is the world's, if you take the, uh, our definition of poverty, which means how productive the workers are, it's the world's poorest country. If mm. you measure their purchasing power, which is how much their labor is worth to them, they are the world's third poorest country. But they're nevertheless, um, got a little nest there of, of very interesting science fiction writers. Uh, and uh, what you in, in some of these countries, some, some of these smaller African countries, I think leadership makes a huge difference. So I think leadership and uh, a tradition of publishing short stories in newspapers, um, having lots of writing competitions and having writing competitions when people are young means that Malawian writers get uh, validated fairly young. So uh, 15 or 16 or 17, they get published or they win a prize. Uh, and then there was, uh, a very, very good anthology, uh, came out, uh, called Imagine Africa 500, pulled together by a fellow called Shadrach Chikoti, who's a very good writer. Uh, his novel, Azotus the Kingdom, is one of the normal prize nominees. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and he runs a, a, a regular workshop there and um there was a workshop for the anthology the people on the workshop were then taken up by um distinguished african writers with their mentors and then somebody i mentioned earlier billy kohora edited the anthology so it it's a very very good anthology and is certainly uh, it's one of the more literary african uh sf and speculative fiction anthologies so malawi had its own sense this um, sense of a whole bunch of really young, uh, really interesting young writers, um, feeling very, very confident, very, very confident, um, in wherever you might not expect it. Uganda, um, characterized by Dil Mandela is, um, where Queen of Katwa was filmed, uh, Dilman made the film, uh, the making of the Queen, Queen of Katwa and, used the money from that to make his own feature film. So there seems to be a lot of uh, young filmmakers. There's young filmmakers everywhere, and and uh, 
I'll get on to some of the filmmakers in Nairobi in a bit, maybe, but uh, also in Kampala there's some, and they were fun to meet. But I think the thing that distinguishes Uganda um, is that they've had this organization called Femrite for since the 1990s. Uh, well, one of the things, one of the things you made clear at the beginning of this is that yeah. uh, uh, you, you're talking about filmmakers just now. Uh, see if I'm right about this. One was that science fiction, and in, in, you're using the broadest definition, something more like Clute's Fantastica. So you're including yeah. very. And the other thing was that it seems that uh, the comic books, graphic novels, fiction, poetry, filmmaking, music. These people seem to be involved in all aspects of the arts rather than – is that correct? Absolutely. And uh, the story that uh, the Nairobians will tell you is that, you know, they don't have the luxury of genre, that they'll have to publish where they can. So they'll do crime fiction. They'll do poetry. They'll make a film. They'll tap dance. They'll paint. And Mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay, I get it. You know, you you guys, you you know, you accept that story. And then – I mean, part two, because I had to do something while I wasn't traveling, was talking to a, a lot of African writers who lived in the UK. And, of course, there they are in the UK, and they're writing crime novels, they're writing science fiction novels, they're writing poetry, and they're painting. And you're thinking, uh-huh. it's not economic necessity. <laughs> it's, it's just how you do things. Anyway, to Uganda, the, there is a shortage, I have to say, and it's kind of embarrassing in the Nomos and in 100 African writers. There just aren't, you know, it's certainly not 50-50 women and men. Right. Uh, but Uganda was a bit different. There seemed to be a, a, a nest of very, very self-actualizing, confident young women. Um, uh, Lillian Aujo, Francis Wongye, and... Um, uh, a young woman, she's 22, uh, Innocent Immaculate Achan. Um, now, she's been publishing in um, a brittle paper for a while. She was in Munyori, and she's nominated for the uh, the Nomo for Best Short Story at 22. And that sort of nest of, of young women writers, I think, does come down to Femrite, which, though it empowered all writers, did also seek to particularly empower uh, women writers. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's one of the things that makes Uganda a bit different. I got a tremendous, I think, I don't know if I've made this up or not, uh, a tremendous sense of continuity in uh, Uganda because the, and I always get my parts of speech messed up. I think it's the Ganda people, but the Buganda kingdom. The Buganda kingdom was never was never destroyed. It, it was, there's a continuity there. And I think though there's many, many other peoples living in uh, Uganda and though Kampala is now a multi, very much a multi-ethnic city. Uh, I, I think that there's a sort of strand of continuity that, that runs through uh, Uganda. Um, the, she didn't found it, but the woman who ran Femrite, um, and I can never pronounce her name properly, Gorechi uh, Giamondo, a marvelous, marvelous woman, wrote a wonderful mainstream novel called Waiting. It was a really good novel about war in that it's mostly boring. And <laughs> you wait. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she was uh, someone who uh, was one of the guiding lights of Femrite and, and wrote a book on 
on writing for Africans. And uh, I don't think it's an accident that, uh, though she lives in the UK now, uh, the author Chintu, spelled Kintu, uh, Jennifer Nansubago Makumbi, um, is from Uganda. Um, and that's a, a novel that can be read as speculative fiction or not, as so many uh, of Africa's fictions are. And that's, a, that's one of the masterpieces, I think. Um, and the other great thing about uh, Kintu was that uh, it couldn't find a Western publisher. They kept saying it was too African. And it was taken up by a Kwani Trust, and they published it. And it became in its... You know, it certainly sold the same number of copies it would have sold uh, if it had been published by a small press in, in Britain. Um, and it got totally validated and, you know, became a national book without going through the usual process of having to be published in the West first and then be come back and given a pat on the head, which is one of the reasons why I think the, the normal awards are important there. In Africa, for Africans, uh, by Africans, and uh, online publishing is incredibly important for that too. Uh, Omenina is a Nigerian-based Pan-African magazine uh, uh, founded by uh, Chiogozi Fred Mwonwu. Uh, he calls himself Mazi Mwonwu, and Chinelo Onwaru, uh, and they do a superb job. That's just a wonderful wonderful online for free journal. If you want to read the best of African science fiction, just go to them. It's online. It's for free. Well, I can um, say, it, it sounds as though it's a challenge for African writers and uh, creators to actually connect their work to interested people in a way that will actually give them some sort of a revenue stream. There's, that doesn't, from, the, from what you're describing, yet really seem to have evolved in a significant way. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I think it probably is. Um, I, I, you know, Africa kind of leapfrogged the uh, desktop computer and kind of went straight to smartphones and tablets. And I think an awful lot, I mean, if you talk to a young African guy about what books he's reading, he'll just hand you over his smartphone. Uh, I suppose part of the reason I ask that is I, I also think about, I think about so people think interested in reading science for the, the stuff. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. So what it means is that they're, they're even getting paid at all, you know, getting just buying fiction is, is maybe not, um, not not quite there. I mean, we're kind of looking at our own future there. Um, I think uh, the, the, there's an awful lot of really good fiction and uh, for free. I mean, I'm having problems with this anthology I'm supposed to be putting together for University of Manchester because they've said that what they won't pay for is for anything that's online for free. Well, the this real history of the rise of African science fiction is all on the blogs uh -huh. and moved on to places like Brittle Paper or uh, Omenina and, um, you know, uh, finding stuff that really every single short story nominated for the Nomo is online for free. You know, I have to say what's frustrating about, about you telling me that, though, is that uh, it seems to me that the value of that book, beyond the value with, in Africa as well, is that by putting it into a book, regardless of whether it's online or not, it then gives it an accessibility and a presence outside of the 
of Africa itself that would be enormously valuable that it sounds like your publisher is overlooking? Uh, well, I've come around to the idea because what, I, what it means is there's an awful lot of fugitive stories that are not online that this thing can now, uh, by putting them online, will make them available to Africans. Because uh, for whatever reason, book distribution in that vast continent is hard to put together. I was, all of this I'm trying to edge around to answering your first question, which is <laughs> to get back to talking about this huge continent, Africa as a whole, maybe we should just talk about sub-Sahara Africa. In fact, there's a science fiction online magazine called Sub-Sahara, uh, one of the many <laughs> online science fiction magazines in Africa. Um, what I've found is the, these creations of nation states, to take one example, Kenya and Uganda, you know, the Luo people uh, exist, you know, they're, they're in both of those countries. The, the, um, the allegiance to the nation state is a different kind of allegiance. I, th I think they still have a, um, a, 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 there is still patriotism in, in Africa if you were an individual country, as far as I can tell. But uh, what I've felt very strongly when I was there is that Pan-Africanism has a genuine emotional undertow that, shall we say, Europe, as we've just seen, doesn't have. That there, uh, that, um, there is a, a, a sort of uh, pan-African feeling and a, and a genuine sense of, you know, a Nigerian comics company, um, you know, the success of that Nigerian comics company is, you know, the enthusiasm is genuinely shared by um, Africans in other countries. One of the things I wanted to mention um, was the Gelada Collective in Nairobi. Uh, they did... Uh, now, they were a younger generation than the Kwani Trust, and they wanted to do something fresh and different, and they felt they'd done workshops to death. Um, and they did a lot of talking over many months and came up with this combination workshop publishing venture that has done a lot of good stuff. Uh, and they're a genuine, they're, you know, straight up Pan-African. Uh, English language up to a point. But the Pan-African thing is very important for them. They did something called the Language Project, which um, it, they took a, a, a speculative story by Ngugi Wationgo, uh, and they originally it was 23. He writes into you and then translates into English, and his whole thing is that you won't get Africa right if you don't write your some aspect of the story, if, if, if people are talking up an African language, write their dialogue in that language first, then translate it. Uh, if your narrator is Kikuyu, then write the whole thing in Kikuyu first and then translate it. What they did is they took one of his stories in English and then had it translated. Uh, Tandai Huchu, for example, who's um, sometimes science fiction writer, immensely influential from Zimbabwe, did a, did a version in Shona. Somebody else did a version in Luo. Somebody, you know, and they had 23 local African languages translating this story, so that there'd be something to read in those languages, other than Azibas, and that the writers would have 
because, as you know, written English is a different language than spoken English. Fluency in one is not fluency in the other. They they wanted to be able to uh, write and publish in their own languages. And while it's now well over 50 languages have translated that story, an awful lot of Europeans have jumped on the boat. The Russians jumped on the boat, you know. <laughs> but so that, to, sorry, go ahead. And, and so that, that's basically pulling in uh, local languages from all over Africa, all over Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was at the Arcade Festival this November in Abeokuta, Nigeria, uh, they, uh, the guest of honor was Ngugi Wationgo, who is this very senior figure um, who uh, wrote some very fine novels. Uh, some of whom, uh, when I asked him, he said, yes, were fantasy novels. The, uh, the Wizard of the Crow is one of his novels mm-hmm. that Acknowledges fantasy. He um, he was great friends with Chino Achebe, but um, he, he is one of the people who, who champions writing in African languages and not in the colonialist languages. Well, that's one of the questions I had because you've mentioned Achebe yeah. several times. It's and it's, if, if, if and, there's one and, African, yeah. If there's one African novel that every English major knows in the UK, and it's, it's it's things fall apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've had conversations with friends that basically say the reason novels like that are so popular in the West is that they read like Western novels. They read like they're descendants of E.M. Forster. And uh, actually, this is one of the things that that Nettie told me at one time. Older African writers in a fantastic tradition, uh, like Amos Tutuola, were not as well received uh, because they didn't read like Western writers. I, I, I don't know about their reception. It's a, a while ago that he was preceded by a Yoruban writer whose name I can never pronounce. Mm-hmm. Um, oh God, uh, translated into English by Wally Suyinka. Um, but wow. there is a whole uh, strand of uh, African and indeed West African writing that's much more phantasmagorical and much more rooted in traditional beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Fungwano, um, Forest of a Thousand Demons, um, which is very similar to Tutuola, was published before Tutuola. Uh, and I think all those West African writers who are in complete contradistinction to that, um, I, 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 I think of them as being the heirs of Chinua Achebe. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many of them, and they're all very, very good. And, you just cannot keep up with the flow of good, uh, realistic fiction coming out of Africa. Um, but, you know, the people I was mentioning, Kojo Lang, um, Silcheni Coker, um, there's an awful lot of, of West African writers uh, in that slightly superseded tradition, only slightly, that we... Um, we, we don't know about as, as much about as we should, but it's definitely there. Um, right. It is curious. I think one of the problems with English across Africa, East and West, is that you may be speaking your maternal language in the home and one of the uh, lingua franca that Africa has a genius generating, be it Shang or Kiswahili or Pidgin, you, you grow up speaking those languages, but then you hit school and everything is then in English. 
and English and speaking a certain kind of English can acquire a kind of status thing around it. Um, and literature and privilege always go hand in hand. You cannot separate the two. And, and so, you know, uh, maybe there's a, a, corral, a correlation between a certain degree of privilege and a certain degree of speaking English and a certain degree of being able to write in, a, in, a, in an international style that will be readable across Africa. Don't, don't forget that, you know, there's, there's that aspect that Chimamanda um, Ngozi Adichie is extremely popular in Kenya as she is in mm. Nigeria. Because you know it's written in a language that everyone there can read and share. Um, you can't. I mean, I, I, I. It's an immensely complicated and interesting uh, area to talk in, and I think someone like me who is not African begins to stray into very dodgy ground very quickly if I start talking about. It. Sure, because but I mean, you, but you also have that I, role of being a pioneer for some of us to take a look. You got us started looking at this. Which is obviously the purpose of this series that you're doing, yeah. It's and it's I, to open I, I, open the door for people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I will say is that um, there's a one of the he's yeah he's one of the founders. He's one of the guys who I think uh, keep the Gelada Collective working so well. Uh, Richard Oduwaduku, um, alongside Moses Kilolo, uh, who who did the Language Project, and uh, don't forget the Gelada's officially second in issue, third issue, in fact, was uh, Afro Futures, which was one of the earliest collections of Pan-African in English um, speculative fiction. They also uh, did Sext Me, which was about the intersection of technology and sex, which was, you know, all of this. You know, certainly one, of the other, one of the other things you pointed out. The, uh... so, uh, I'm, I'm coming around slowly, but surely. Okay. All right. So Richard did for the language project, it's not just one issue, is he wrote a story that I think has strong speculative elements. Um, and uh, it, 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 uh, he wrote it in Luo first. He wrote it in Luo because he'd read a story in which Luo characters were supposed to be using words like demo democracy and uh, equality which are just not Luo words. And I was wondering, well, how on earth would someone say that in Luo? So he turned around and wrote his story in Luo, which is very much what Ngugi Watiango recommends, and then did an extremely literal translation of it. And I thought the English in that was so interesting. And, you know, as English, so much more flavorful and so much more strongly voiced. And I thought that, that strong voice. I don't, I don't know that a, a lot of African re, uh, writers know how much the international audience likes that strong voice. Um, I'm thinking Marlon James in from, in Jamaica, writing it very strongly in, in the local voice. And uh, Juno Diaz in, in the United States, writing a very strongly flavored Dominicano stroke mm -hmm. New York uh, voice. Um, and very similarly, his story seemed to me to have a lot more flavor and punch to it, having been written in Luo first and then using 
something, you know, the, the, the idioms and the metaphors and the way of speaking, the repetitions and the rhythms were really interesting. Uh, so from my point of view as, as a Western reader, it's a loss of interest writing in this slightly bland international style. But it's not for me to say. Um, and, uh, one, one of the other points you made at the end uh, of the essay, which, which I thought was interesting and not too surprising, is that the, uh, most of the African writers you're talking about have very little connection to Western traditions of science fiction. Yeah. They're not familiar. The, the whole Heinlein, Clark, Asimov, Bradbury thing, you mentioned, I think, that occasionally somebody will mention Philip K. Dick or Octavia Butler, but by and large, it's unconnected to what we think of as the traditional history of science fiction. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, Enid Blyton is a much bigger influence on huh. African science fiction than Bill Gibson, Connie Willis, you know, Joanna Russ. Uh, they, they, they simply haven't had access to that stuff. They haven't mm. read it. Harry Potter, yeah. Japanese manga, yeah. Um, is it a thing where there's a certain, like, era of fiction that is, you know, printed fiction books that are available, and then because of this proliferation of technology that you've talked about, the commonality of smartphones as communication... It, the kind of material that you can then readily access in that environment is kind of different. It is manga, it is film, it is pieces of animation, it is whatever else, rather than necessarily these texts that we're familiar with. And the other, the other difficulty is that they don't have Amazon. They don't wow. have a model where you can go and get your Kindle edition. There are some ebook uh, suppliers or who. But by and large, the the differences in the financial system, by and large, mean that um, you know there's there's an attempt now to try and get something like Amazon going in Malawi, but it's quite complicated to organize. So, you know, uh, commercial ebooks are are they're there, but they're not the influence. I mean, basically, uh, I'm not too sure where the books on everyone's smartphones come from. They tend to be classics. Uh, I think what happens is people get them by hook or by crook and then distribute them among their friends. Um, so uh, there's, there's, a, there's a huge difficulty still, I think, getting, getting hold of books. Um, going to, uh, you know, there are, they have some very good bookshops in Africa, and that's a very complicated situation with the, the bookshops in Africa and book distribution in Africa. But yeah, um, there is this thing too that, you know, you, you're not going to hunt up Alfred Bester unless no. you know there is an Alfred Bester to look up and that it might be read. Yes, you're, you're far uh, more likely to be in, 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 you know, encountering, frankly, a pirated copy of the latest Marvel movie than 1950s golden age science fiction. It basically... Of, in some of those countries, they they have absolutely no problem whatsoever getting hold of The Flash, getting hold of Gotham, ah. getting hold of all the movies. Uh, and they're very, very, very up to speed with all of that. So one of the phenomena that you see is some very good uh, writers who write very good literary fiction, um, write science fiction. And from my perspective, it kind of feels like it's... Um, a monster movie. 
um, Kesti, that that's just for me as a reader. That's one of the things I, I remember somebody telling me once years ago about uh, one of the reasons that Western science fiction people from Bester to Farmer were were so well known in the Soviet Union is through pirated editions. If they had been, if if they'd been sold legally, nobody would have heard of Philip Jose Farmer. But apparently, he became a huge bestseller um, simply through piracy. Yeah, it could be that they're simply not interested too. Um, much more interested in what they've got to say. They're much more interested in their generation. Uh-huh. Uh, they're much more interested in 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 seeing this applied to Africa. And they're having all the fun of inventing it. I mean, it, it, could, well, it could well take it picking up a, a Frederick Pohl now in Nairobi is maybe you find Frederick Pohl irrelevant to you. I hate to say it, he's a wonderful writer, but maybe if you're 22, growing up in Nairobi now, uh, there's not that much to say to you and you, you, you want yeah. your own stuff. Just, that's a possibility too. It sounds perfectly reasonable. I mean, you are, have painted for us a picture of a broad, diverse, vibrant, young creative culture spread across a vast physical area. It, it doesn't strike me that there's any logical reason at all they should that they should, in any significant number, have any great interest in anything other than the culture that they find around them and can investigate. And if it's something that's locked up in print in another country by someone they've never heard of, there's no real rational reason to expect it to have any great influence at all. I find it very interesting that the great science fiction continuity turns out to be, well, we always, we had a pretty good idea that the great science fiction continuity was pretty ethnocentric. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just, just desserts that, you know, very suddenly there's been this leap and there is world science fiction and that, uh, you know, it's it's not really all that relevant or even of that much interest. You know, that it's it basically, it, it was science fiction for a particular culture and, you know, it's passing uh, worldwide and it sounds like it's passing somewhat in, uh, well, in the United States itself. You know, we'll see. I yeah. don't know. What I'm curious as well is your thoughts on, on, on this, and that is there is quite a vibrant um, expatriate or uh, diaspora science fiction community that originated in Africa, you know, sort of people who, who either have ancestry there or who directly you know, migrated from there, either to the United States or the United Kingdom, uh, people like Sophia Samatar and Nadia Korofor and whoever else. First of all, how important do you think that diaspora is, and do you see that feeding back into science fiction fantasy in Africa? The reason I'm doing this series is not so much that I think I have to explain Africa, because I can't possibly. Sure. I'm really doing it to explain science fiction. And the thing that suddenly becomes extremely clear is that uh, science, science fiction and diaspora uh, go together. They're associated together. Uh, science fiction moved once before from Europe to America. Uh, science fiction, indeed, the term is an American term, and it became an American genre. But it did so, you know, like in some old year, like 1914. Um, but it began, I would say, with the publication of The Wizard of Oz in 1900, um, starting in 1900 to 1920, 
and I may have my figures a bit jumbled and a bit, I am not a scholar and indeed uh, have not a very good memory, but I think it's something like one third of the American people, black and white, left, left the countryside and moved into cities. It was a huge diaspora. Yeah. And uh, an awful lot of the, what had been the Western frontier, your Kansases and your Ohio's and your further south, uh, ended up in Chicago. And Chicago was where The Wizard of Oz was uh, uh, written and published. It's where Edgar Rice Burroughs was selling pencils. It's where Frank Lloyd Wright was de designing his buildings. It's where uh, a lot of black music became urban. Um, it became a, a kind of creative center. And, and uh, you know, yeah, Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote A Princess of Mars in Chicago. And The Wizard of Oz was written there. At the same time, uh, you had another diaspora in America. You had, uh, uh, I think it was, was it 1907, you had 1.3 million people go through Ellis Island uh, from right. Southern and Eastern Europe. And as we know, they, they contributed mightily also to the rise of science fiction in America. And I kind of think what happens is, uh, with diaspora, is that you, you very suddenly, very quickly, in in living human time, you go from one culture with one set of values rooted perhaps in a community and very suddenly you're slammed into another. So you tend to look back on the, on the lost cultures of, of the past, the things you've given up. And you tend with almost just by looking left to right uh, to think, well, if my life can change that quickly, Everybody's life can change that quickly. You know, society can change that quickly. Social rules are different and can move. What's going to happen in the future? And I think that experience of severe social change, which is made very sharp and clear when you change countries, um, I, I think that's one of the reasons people turn to Fantastica. And I think it's why fantasy and science fiction are sort of linked, because it's all around social change. now. There's no doubt about it that the diaspora and African science fiction is hugely associated. Um, that uh, there's also a, a strong sense, I think, that all of Africa is in diaspora, even without moving, because of the incredible speed of social change, technological change. But uh, one of the young writers I talked to, Kiprok Ikimutai, in Kenya, um, and he was saying, you know, my great grandparents, you know, they lived in vernacular architecture, speaking the local language, eating the local right. food. They may have been exposed to the Bible, but they may have been practicing completely traditional religions. And, you know, three generations later, here I am in Nairobi, you know, working on viral markets by day and my fiction by night. So there's been that huge acceleration. Um, and I think that, that, that for me helps explain why so much of one whole strand, it, perhaps even the greater part of African speculative fiction is, um, it's not that I'm not going to use that term magic realism. I'm going to call it traditional belief or spiritual realism. Uh, so much of it either draws directly on traditional beliefs or um, kind of feels like it has, uh, even if it's they're not actual 
you know, folklore tales that are being retold. Um, I, I think there's a, a strong sense of, um, of looking back on and a, in a strange kind of way, a continuity of traditional beliefs and traditional um, storytelling. Yeah. I think that's what's fascinating. Yeah, uh, that what you're describing sounds like a science fiction story itself. You're talking about uh, what if there had been no tradition of Wells or Heinlein and that. What if there was no science fiction, and here in the 21st century in Africa, people were beginning to invent something? In other words, what would science fiction look like invented today and invented in a completely separate culture uh, from the one that it evolved in in our history? I, I don't know, but uh, it, you know, one of the um, guys I interviewed, Aubrey Chinguo, uh, he basically invented fantasy writing because he got hold of a collected stories of Edgar Allan Poe and one YA novel. I think it's by Judith Clark. And out of that, he kind of invented writing fantastic stories. Um, I I don't know. I I kind of begin to think that my own experience suggests I was a kind of little kid who was always drawn to talking animal stories or wizards and goblins. I think there's a, a, a percentage of any community there's just people who kind of respond to that kind of metaphoric thing. A couple of the writers I spoke to, a, a woman, young woman writer called Seki Chilima, she was just saying that from the word go, dad would start telling her stories in bed at night, and if they had magic in it or, or, or animals in it, you know, she was more interested. I think there's that aspect, too. I, 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 right. I think they'd probably come up with something not too different than what they're doing now. Really honestly, though, I think the movies have fed into it an awful lot. Yeah. One thing, I mean, we're getting sort of you know, a little bit towards the end of the hour that we usually allow for this, and we may come back to it another time if we can. But there's a question I'd like to ask you that's not directly about that, about Af- you know, the African SF project, and it's this. You've invested a lot of time and energy and passion into this. I'm curious, do you find that when you find the opportunity to to write yourself that it is now bleeding back into your own work? Uh, no. No. <laughs> and, and, Fair enough, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. I, 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 right now, I'm not doing anything else other than this anyway. I, it's, um, it's a slightly, for the first time, having been a science fiction writer, I'm now sort of on the other side where I'm being one of those science fiction fans who sort of helps make things happen. And uh, that becomes very, very uh, interesting, you know, the mechanics of getting everybody together, voting or whatever. It becomes very, very interesting keeping the conversation going, um, you know, uh, and and uh, organizing. You know, the Wally Talabi is doing this great list of everything that everybody's doing. He's basically <laughs> putting together this fabulous list of every single piece of uh, science fiction by an African. Uh, one of the best things that came out of the Nomos, I think, was in working through how we were going to do it. We had to define what we meant, and we have this very, I think they've come up with this marvelously open yes. description of, of who an African is, which means, you know, essentially an African parent. Um, or you've uh, lived in Africa for quite a long time, or you were born there, or you have a passport. It's a series of different kinds of aspects that, that still make sure that it, it's um, 
four, four Africans, but um, it's, it's a very uh, sophisticated and, and flexible and open-hearted uh, an inclusive kind of description, I think, which is very encouraging, but clear. You know? Yes, um, very much. I mean, I, I, was, I was struck by it myself when I was looking at the nomos um, before the podcast, because I knew we'd be talking about them. I was looking at it, and it's an issue which has confronted me in the past when it comes to Australian science fiction and how you define that and how you define who is Australian for that purposes. Uh, and I was struck by just how generous and open and unconcerned about exclusion the whole approach was yeah i think that's right and that's one of the achievements i think it's a a model that can now be used in other circumstances there are some very good books and i'd just like to go over them yes some of them uh-huh. are nominated for the nomo some of them aren't um there's a very good book that wasn't nominated for the nomo or shortlisted it was nominated and it's available in gates it's called the raft by fred stridham mm-hmm. uh from South Africa. Um, it's a bang-up science fiction novel about memory and guilt. Um, it seems to be a feature of uh, African uh, science fiction novels that they, they seem to really have very, very good construction. And that's just... Um, it takes you through some changes. I can tell you there's times when you do not know what is real and what is not. And it is also tied up so beautifully. Um, and, and it is about that South African thing of memory and guilt without actually touching on apartheid and, you know, raising the issue and the struggle again. It's, um, it's a really good book. Um, the nominees, I would uh, recommend um, Azotus the Kingdom by Shadrach Chikoti, a very elegant, low-key dystopia, a very bad future for Africa, uh, though it looks like a utopia at first. And Zanian Bridges by Nick Wood, which Wonderful is... Book. Yeah, and is about empathy as a weapon and uh, in the South African context. And uh, that was a very, very good book. Uh, Tady Went West, which once read, you will never forget, very bizarre. Um, that's a very, I, you know, for me, that was your typical Nairobi novel. And the guy's South African. Uh, Tady Went West by Nikhil Singh. Um, it's dedicated to William Burroughs. It's uh, African wild boy fiction, um, dinosaurs, psychic prostitutes, lots of drugs, very violent um, and very slow. Very, It's just pages of description and totally gonzo at the same time. Very interesting. A book that didn't make the um, nomos, which I thought was very good, was To Do No Song. Uh, oh, and... Sorry, my pronunciation is gone. Mm. Odafe, oh, God help me. Taduno, T-A-D-U-N-O, Taduno's song, which takes Fela Kuti and um, abstracts his biography uh, and uh, uh, basically you are a, a, an artist as influential as Fela Kuti, but you wake up and suddenly nobody remembers you ever existed. And uh, why that might be. And then the government of the day, uh, and this is based more on Fela Kuti's biography, um, starts blackmailing you into trying to get you to support the government. Um, it's a very moving, moving novel. Um, uh, almost sentimental, but but really very good novel. Um Oh, Black Ass by Agony Barrett. 
very funny yep. novel about many different kinds of trans. Um, uh, we've got Sophia Samatar's Winged Histories came out, of course. Uh, oh, gosh. So, so, so much good. Stuff. Of course. What we will do is we'll, we'll make a point of linking to a lot of this stuff in the notes that go out with the episode. We'll yep. certainly link to the, the long list of novel nom- nom- nominations, and we'll link to To Do No Song by Adafi Atogun, I guess. It, I, I, my yep. pronunciation's not there, I wouldn't pretend. But something like that, I guess. Um, yep. And that's actually available. It's available here, I know, because it's from Alan and Unwin. Yep. So, yep. I mean, interested readers can, can, Some of these you know, can books find are it. available in the States, which is why I'm trying to mention them. Yeah. Um, and anyway, we'll, yeah. we'll also make a point okay. of linking to uh, 100 African uh, SFF writers itself, and we'll encourage everybody to actually keep, you know, keep up with it as the, as the series continues to expand and evolve, because you're about what about a, th- a third of the way through, half of the way through the ultimate okay. project, so I, the I think. The plan is, uh, I've got a, this huge thing on just Cape Town. Yeah. There's a lot of writers. Um, there's a, an interview with Sophia Samatar coming out next month. Yep. Then Cape Town writers, there's going to be a chapter on South African writers elsewhere in South Africa. Um, there's the Ugandan chapter. Uh, then there are two or three chapters on Nigeria. Uh, and then the last one, I'm going to Ghana uh, in about two weeks' time. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish off with Ghana. And that'll have to be it for a while. Um, <laughs> okay. There, there, there we go. Um, but I, I hope to, to keep doing it, though. The uh, <laughs> I, I won't have the funding uh, after me. Yeah. Well, what I have to say is thank you so much for making the time to talk to us about 100 African uh, SF writers and about the Nomos and about your, your passion for it. Uh, I'm very grateful, I know Gary is as well, for the, for the time you're putting into it and for, for taking time to speak to us. It's something that's enormously interesting and an exciting and encouraging thing to have happen in the world of speculative fiction today. So thank you very, very much, Jeff. Okay, well, thanks, guys. Um, and, and do get people to the normals because apart from anything else, um, they won't be able to read the novels for free, but they'll certainly be able to... Uh, uh, get links to the nominated stories. We certainly shall. And so, th- so thank you again. And Gary, until next time, I'll talk to you next week. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, this has been the Coon Street Podcast. <laughs>